just past 7 o'clock, and it's time to start getting excited because it's time for Iron Sports. This is 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Going to be a good one for you tonight, <clears throat> even as the... Uh, Summer draws on. There's still always plenty to discuss here on Ira on Sports. Ira is not in studio with us tonight. Ira, where are you now? Um, I'm in New York right now, but uh, we'll be headed back to Florida very soon. And uh, so I, I know you kind of did some jet setting around the uh, country a little, a little bit this past week. So uh, tell us everything you took in. Um, well, I, uh, I was at the Angels-Dodgers game in uh, uh, the two games on Tuesday and Wednesday. And it was, if you were in attendance at Dodger Stadium and saw 53,000 sold-out, sta- you know, standing-room-only, regular-season baseball games on Tuesday and Wednesday in the perfect weather. When people say, like, baseball's dead, nobody cares about baseball. I mean, <laughs> totally. I mean, certainly, L.A. Dodgers lead the league in attendance. They have the greatest franchise besides the Yankees and maybe the Red Sox, but in terms of their publicity, and uh, it was tremendous to be there and catch a regular season baseball game that everyone was into. No, a- absolutely, Ira. And th- that was one of the things I wanted to ask you is what was the atmosphere like and what was the, the split on fans? I mean, of course, people may not realize if they're not huge sports fans, the Dodgers and, and Angels play in the same city, but they very, very infrequently play. But now at Interleague, we do get to see this. Um, I would say it's ninety ten. You know, it seemed it seemed like really because there, the Angel Stadium sits. I think it's like twenty miles from Dodger Stadium or twenty five miles. But if it's in traffic, that's like four hours. I mean, that would be like <laughs> going from uh, Miami to Jacksonville. In the timing, so it's in the traffic situation. But uh, uh, there, it was it was. But it's interesting because the Angels fans all wore red and the Dodger fans all wore Dodger blue. So it was. It, you could see the distinction between the two of them. But uh, it was exciting to be a game because the Angels have stars. Albert Pujols is a first ballot Hall of Famer, one of the greatest players to all the game. Mike Trout, first ballot Hall of Famer, one of the greatest players to play the game. Otani is the Japanese sensation uh, pitcher and hitter to see that from the Angels. So it was exciting to see the Angels play the Dodgers. And, and, it, and it's, it's a rivalry. It's, it doesn't rank with the rivalry between the Dodgers and the Giants, but certainly an inner city rivalry, just like, of course, like the Yankees and Mets, is something special. Yeah, and of course, uh, p- people definitely want to see it. Um, all right, Iris, so tell us about game one. Well, I, it's just, it was my chance. I don't think I ever saw Mike Trout play in person before. So considering that he is on the pace to become the greatest baseball player of all time, not to have seen him live. I mean, I can't, I could look through all my times I've watched games, and I don't think, I might have seen him in an All-Star, besides him in an All-Star game but in a regular season game. So it was exciting to see him. I mean, so far this year, he has 34 home runs, 85 RBIs, hits 300. He's on a pace for 51 home runs. Since 2012, he's averaged 30 home runs with a 306 average. Just look at the MVP. In 2012, he was the second in the MVP and won the Rookie of the Year. In 2013, he was second again in MVP. Now, this is like the entire league. So the first two years, he's second. Then in 2014, he won the MVP. Then 2015, he's second again. 2016, won the MVP. 2017 was fourth, and last year he was second. And this year he's probably favored to win it again. So it's just – and, of course, we talked about how he signed the $400 million contract and everything. But it was just great. It was interesting 
interesting to see because when you see him in person, you just see the discipline at the plate. He's a, he bats second. Um, his focus, his energy, his enthusiasm. He's a quiet team leader, but you can see that the other players look to him. And defensively, he is tremendous. He plays center field. He catches all the balls. He has a great, great arm. We saw it's a 280-foot uh, uh, throw that he made. So it was great to see him. It's not like when you see LeBron James play in person because he doesn't have the ball in his hands, and when you see a superstar, he doesn't hit a home run like when Barry Bonds hit it. But just to see Mike Trout know his greatness, watch it at, at amazing seats that sat there. And uh, so that was, a lot, that was a lot of fun. And this guy, Cole Calhoun, has surprisingly had an interesting year for the Angels. Uh, he got off to, to a good start. He had a, a, a home run, and he had a double, bringing, driving in some runs. And Pujols actually drove in a run. And then Pujols is breaking all his records. He had 650 home runs. 2,044 REIs, and he's hit 301 for his career. Uh, the only people that have more home runs are Mays, Aaron, Ruth, uh, and Bonds, and, uh, and, and A-Rod. And then the only, only RBIs would be Aaron and Bonds. So he is potentially placed three more years, which I don't know if he can potentially do that. I mean, he might hold... I don't know if he's going to break Bonds' record, but he's going to be like the 720-730 home run mark. He probably is going to have the RBI mark, uh, and just it was tremendous to see that. And the Angels went up to 4-1 on the Dodgers, and then, uh, and then Calhoun hit another, had a home run to make it 5-3. But it was, it, you could just see how well the, the, uh, the Angels were in the outfield. Trout threw in the first, and he had... Um, he had, a, he had a, first of all, he had a 450-foot home run, and then he threw out, had an amazing throw from dead center field to throw out a ta- someone tagging up from third base. So, I mean, it was, it, was very, it was very interesting how well the Angels played on defense. When I, I say Dodgers are the best team in the world, they have so many players, but they, are, they lead the National League in airs, they're sloppy, and when they played a team that really made a lot of great defensive plays, it, it came into something, you know, it was, a, was a problem. I mean, Kiki Hernandez in the uh, bottom of the ninth, uh, hit a single. Bellinger was rounding third base, and the Dodger third base coach sent him, and uh, uh, he was thrown out by Coleman. It wasn't even close, and uh, it was a great, great throw. But, so they had three, actually three runners at, at, at uh, home plate were thrown out by the, uh, by the Angels. So, and then the second game, uh, same situation, just beautiful. I mean, the games start around 7 o'clock. At 7:05, it's like 82, but perfect 82, no humidity. And then at the end of the game, when it's like goes down to like 75, 74, I mean, it's like perfect weather. And around the sixth or seventh inning, there's the I'm gonna if you go to the Iron Sports Instagram page, you're gonna see these pictures. And as someone said, it looks like Roy Hobbs of the Natural. I mean, the the uh, you can see it was the sky is pink. Um, and it's just, and the sun is setting, and it's like, and I'm sitting, I mean, people who have the upper deck seats even see even better, but it's just an amazing view, tremendous to watch, and uh, just a great, great situation. But again, uh, Calhoun doubled Trout and scored a run in the first inning. Uh, the, uh, the, then Calhoun had another home run. I mean, this Calhoun was just, just, uh, was just a, an amazing game for him. And then uh, two games. And then uh, Turner for, for Dodgers hit a home run. But Trout... Had a sacrifice fly, but on the Dodger air, Austin Barnes uh, made an error, and they were able to get the three-one lead. And Barnes was back, sent back down to the minors. I mean, the Dodgers have so many people. Will Smith at the catcher position we talked about last week. That if you're not making a mistake, they just bring people up. But 
but uh, it was it was again they were able to hold on and win the game at three two. And so the Dodgers, who I kept saying is the greatest team, they're going to run away with Dodger League. If they lose in the playoffs, it's going to be now they didn't start play. They didn't have any of their top three pitchers pitch, so it was Maeda pitching and Stribling on the other game. But the fact is the Dodgers do have they, their defensive mistakes cost them, and even when they're their fourth and fifth starters, or the fifth and sixth starters, actually played okay. They weren't able to win these games. And, and I think the Dodgers are running. They have so many come-from-behind come wins that, uh, that I think they almost are like those teams that are like just waiting to come up. That they, they don't mind that the score is close because they just win the ninth all the time. And that's hard in baseball. Just to wait, say, okay, let's be down one run in the ninth and come back and win. You're going to lose most of those games. And I think that might have been the mentality that Dodgers have, and they better switch that up if they intend to, uh, you know, intend to win the World Series. Well, you know, it's funny. By the way, this is Ira on Sports on the True Oldies channel. Ira mentioned this Instagram earlier. You can follow that. It's at Ira on Sports on Instagram. This is the True Oldies channel. You know, Ira, it's funny you bring up defense. And a lot of times, that's what you need to win the World Series. It's great to have good pitching. But we've seen a lot in recent years. You know, Boston, um, you know, Boston last year was just an amazing team all around and you complimented Mike Trout as well and you know Trout would still be a first ballot Hall of Famer if he wasn't even a gold glove caliber outfielder but he happens to be and that's what takes you from that good team to the great team I think what makes Trout and I saw on that throw and if you guys google 260 foot throw throws on the fly Muncie at home in that first game um not only does he have that great coverage, because we've seen a lot of center fielders who can cover a lot of ground. Like there's been, like I remember from the going for the Pirates, Omar Marino and someone like that. But it's rare that you can cover all this ground and still make the great throw. And then you just, everyone thinks about uh, Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays. And who, mm-hmm. and so, but Trout is in that conversation, but that's what makes him great. He not only is a great center fielder, can cover all the ground and make the great throw, but is also the best hitter in the game too. So that's where that, that nice comparison between those, if, if you're compared to Mays, and man, oh, that's the elite company. Yeah, fair company to be in. <laughs> Mike Trout is, uh, is definitely there. So, Ira, uh, let's talk about, you know, my New York Yankees. This weekend, surely, you know, they've got a, a decent lead in the AL East, but this weekend is just not what you wanted to see if you're a Yankee fan. Well, we talk about who the favorites to win the World Series are, and it's the Yankees and the Dodgers. And I said last week, and then you come to this week and you see the Dodgers lose these games where they were just made mistakes, the bullpen gave up some extra runs, and then you watch the Yankees, and that was a disaster. I, don't, I mean, the Dodgers should be nervous about what happened against the Angels. The Yankees should be really nervous because that is exact, their, their pitching was a disaster. I mean, I go into a bar to watch the game. Now I'm in L.A., so you turn the bar like at 5, 4.30 for a game or whatever, you know, early in the afternoon, and they're down 7 nothing, and you think they're going to come back. I mean, they have Tanaka, their supposedly number one starter on the mound. They leave him in the game. He ends up by the fourth inning, it's, it's 11 nothing, And I start Googling. I'm saying, what's the worst outing a Yankee starter has and this ever had ever? And it was, it was in 1923 by 13 runs. And because they ended up giving another run. And I just couldn't believe they didn't pull him earlier. Now, the Boone is saying, well, we didn't want it. We didn't want to use our bullpen up. But you're only down 7 nothing, And you have 13 pitchers on the run. I, I couldn't believe they threw that game away. I mean, Todd Naka was horrendous at the end of the game. He was just awful. I mean, it, it, it was, he couldn't even pitch. And they left him in there just to get, quote, innings and threw away the game. And then they bring – but, you know, Austin Romine, their catcher, pitched the final inning, pitched much better than Naka. He only gave up one <laughs> run. But to lose 19-3 – is just a disaster. No, absolutely it was. And, you know, Tanaka, Tanaka's one thing. He, he That was a really, really, you could tell watching that game, he just didn't have it. And you're right, he should have not stayed in that long. 
I'm more worried, though, Ira, about James Paxton, the Yankees' big offseason acquisition from Seattle. Guy's name is supposed to be Big Game James, and he's got big time shelled his last two times out. Well, it, it, when you give the, with this, uh, we're going to start throwing out statistics. I couldn't even get these statistics are amazing. In the first game, Rich Porcello got 10 runs of support for the fifth straight game, which is you say, well, that must be pretty rare to get 10 runs of support when you're pitching. It hasn't happened since 1896. 1896, not 1996. <laughs> I mean, these, these statistics are amazing. I mean, New York Paxton goes in, and Fordings, he gave up seven runs. Mookie Betts ending up having three home runs. I mean, the, we talked about this last week. The Red Sox, people say, oh, they're going to be sellers. When you have a lineup of Betts who's getting hot, Devers, who's the youngest this month, the youngest to hit 30 RBIs in a month in Boston since Ted Williams, Bogarts is great, Martinez, Benatende, uh, Brock Holt, and then they got their Kashner, who they traded, who they, their recent addition. I mean, he pitched his first good game. And then they shell uh, uh, Paxton, seven runs at Fordings. New York allowed, at that point, 64 runs in six games, the most allowed by the Yankees in a six-game span ever. I mean, they are on. It is unbelievable how they were the first team in the live bar era since 1920 where starters allowed six more runs of four innings in, in six straight starts. I mean, they're just, they're, their entire starting rotation has totally imploded. And then you get to the third game and, and they lose that game 9 5. And, and it was the sixth straight game. Boston has scored eight or more runs against the Yankees. That's the first time in the 117-year uh, um, rivalry, years of rivalry. The Yankees, since the All-Star break, an eight ERA. The opponents have a 650 slugging percentage and 26 home runs against the Yankees. And I'm, I'm like, and still Vegas has them, and I have them as winning the World Series with the worst pitching staff you could possibly imagine. And they only, the weird thing is they finally only win there. They've lost the first three games. And then in game four, they beat the Red Sox uh, ace, Chris Sale, who's having uh, just a horrendous year. Uh, but, uh, and that was, a, that was a good game. The Yankees had to, they did not want to be swept in four games. But, uh, but just, a, just, a, just a terrible three-game stretch there for the Yankees. All right, Ira, why don't you um, get us caught up on what the uh, leaderboard looks like if we're trying to make the playoffs. Well, to, and, 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 in conjunction with that, the Astros went two out of three from the Cardinals. And as much as everyone thinks the Yankees are going to be in the World Series, I think the Astros. The Astros have the pitching. They have Verlander. They have Cole. Um, they have, I think, the team. They have a better bullpen. And they have the same hitters, and they can match the Yankees for hitting. So I really think the Astros, if you put Astros, Yankees, I think Astros win that. And as much as, and now they took the best, they have the best record. They passed the Yankees with the record. But the Dodgers are 14.5 over the Giants and 15.5 over Arizona in the, in the West. The Cubs and Cardinals and the Brewers are almost virtually tied in the Central. And the, East, the, uh, the Braves are 5.5 over Washington and 6.5 over the Phillies. So it's funny, the Nationals and Phillies, who have had this up-and-down year, they're sort of in it because when you look at the wild card, it's Cubs, Cardinals, uh, Washington, Philly, Milwaukee, Giants. Uh, they're all within three games, Arizona even there. So it's, it's just an amazing race that you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight teams all battling. That's why they put the two teams in the wild card. Remember, in the wild card, the division winners get the bye. The two wild card teams play each other, and they play the best division winner. And I like what they did. I love this setup because what it makes is that if you don't get the wild card in that wild card game, you're going to have to use your star pitcher, and that he won't be able to pitch then into the series and up to the, like, you know, the games three or four in the first round of playoffs. So it actually, I think, it penalizes you for not winning. Division, but it does allow two wild cards to get in. 
And then in the, uh, in the American League, the Yankees are eight and a half over the Red Sox, nine over the Rays. Cleveland has cut that lead to Michigan down to Minnesota down to two, and Houston's eight wins over Oakland. Uh, Cleveland. Cleveland is going to get the wild card. Either Minnesota or Cleveland will get that wild card. But then Oakland, Tampa, and Boston are all tied trying to get that second, second wild card uh, uh, locked up. But it's interesting because these are the teams that are in the playoffs, and these are, of course, the buyers or hold firm, and everyone else should be, quote, the sellers. Okay, Ira, um, let's get into the trade deadline. And the, the talk of it all is going to be the Mets, so let's talk about that first before we get into everything else. I really am questioning what the Mets are doing. And I don't know, I mean, we didn't talk about this if we were in a, you know, for or against this trade. They acquired Marcus Stroman. Uh, he's actually from the town next to me on Long Island. So he's coming home. He was uh, an all-star caliber pitcher. He's, he's, he's quality. So you bring him in, they didn't have to give up all that much for him, but they're rumored to still be trying to shop Noah Syndergaard and Edwin Diaz. So WFAN, the big radio station in, uh, in New York, the sports station, comes out today and says... Mets going all in for 2020. How can you be going all in when you're shopping your ace and your closer, Ira? So what do you think is going on here at uh, uh, City Field? Well, first of all, they're only six games out of the wild card, and it's only July. Like, I, I, again, I, am, I don't like tanking. I like teams playing it I've, in all sports. I think it's important that we watch the games. I, I, I go to a lot of events. Uh, we talk about this load management in the NBA, which I think is a serious serious problem and i don't want to see it in baseball either and uh and i and i like the fact that the stroman trade seems like they're getting rid of now they traded vargas but their pitching staff i mean steven match who's had an up and down year had a complete game shutout in two hours and 15 minutes against the pirates on sunday um he pitched great uh then you have uh, and you have synagogue who's having a average year, bad for him, but he still could be, you know, as an elite player. You have DeGrom, who's considered one of the best pitchers in, 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 in the game. And, uh, uh, and so I like it. And they have Wheeler, who's actually pitching really well lately. So I, 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 and I think this team, I think the Mets can still do it. I like the Stroman trade. I think they have one of the, the if not the best uh, starting staff in the National League. And Look, it, these teams aren't great. They're trying to catch. I like the fact that they're trying to go. They're trying for it. I, I'm, all, I'm actually all in favor of the Stroman trade. I was shocked by it. I couldn't believe it. And I think if you look at commentators, most everybody's against it. Um, and, uh, but I, I thought it was – I like that they went for it. I think it's smart. And they – I don't think they're going to trade center guard. But the Diaz, their closer – Maybe. I mean, their bullpen is bad. Everybody knows the Mets bullpen is terrible, but it seems like there's a market that could get for Diaz, and uh, that would be weird. I think, I think they, they're trying to say is, who can we get if so we can get something super fort will make that trade? I'm, I'm not criticizing the Mets for Stroman like everyone else. I mean, universally, this trade, this is like the Westbrook-Harden trade. I think everyone's criticizing Westbrook and, the Westbrook-Harden, putting them together. I'm not doing that, and I'm not doing it on this trade either. Um. That's the whole thing, though. And Edwin Diaz, he's not the same pitcher he was uh, last year in Seattle. But you still need a bullpen eye. And that's why, like, to me, you're right. I do think that they're just they're dangling Syndergaard out there. And if someone decides to, to empty out their farm system, sure, they'll take it. Um, but you're going to need – if, you, if you're going to make a run this year or next year, this team hasn't had a solid bullpen maybe since, since the 80s, Ira. And so it's like, well, you can't be getting rid of these guys. Yeah, I, I know. I, I, it's interesting. I mean, I think everyone, Van Wagerman, who is the uh, GM of the Mets, I think is, is the GM of the Mets, he, 
he, he's getting criticized, and people don't like him, and he seems to have this edge to him because he's an agent. And anybody who becomes an agent and becomes the same like the Oakland Raiders general manager, uh, who is a commentator, if you're, not, if you're not a general manager and come up through the ranks, you get criticized. I like I like this. <laughs> I like Strowman. He is so excited to be he being he like he is a fiery uh, guy. He's only five seven, like one sixty five, one seventy. But he loves this. I mean, he did not want to be traded. He loved playing for Toronto. But what? But when he got traded, he was excited about the trade. I think he's going to make a difference, and I think it was a good move. Okay, or what else uh, is going on in uh, as far as the trade deadline? Well. Everyone's talking about Trevor Bauer for Cleveland, and what they're talking about is that he got pulled on the, in the game on Sunday. And after he got pulled by Francona, as he's walking out, he just gave up a gave up a run. He took the, before they, they called time, and he threw the ball over center field, uh, over the fence, <laughs> uh, which is hilarious. You should watch that. And then he got in Francona. Francona, they had the words when he was saying like, "What are you doing? Like, what's the matter with you?" And then Bauer apologized and all these things. But that's one reason why people don't think he has the mindset to go and to an other team. Now, the key with a guy like Stroman is that he is now under contract for another year. So not only does the Mets get him this year, they have him for next year. And Bauer is under contract for two more years. So the idea is we're making a trade for players that are under contract and at, at manageable money. Uh, the Mets, uh, Stroman should get, probably get about $12 million next year. And so that it's manageable. They give up Vargas, who should get $8 million next year when, in the trade. So Bauer is, but I don't think Cleveland's going to trade him. I, I think, I, I think I, again, I don't think they trade him. I think Cleveland wants to make a run for this, and uh, they're two games out, so why are they trading one of their best pitchers? It makes no sense to me, and I think they're going to keep going for it. I mean, the Tampa Bay Rays are going for it. I mean, they, 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 they have been making some small little moves on utility guys. There's Eric Sogard. I mean, they're, they're going for this, and they're a team that, that you know, could really just say, oh, we're going to get rid of our good players and retool like we always do, but they're making some, some very interesting moves to stay in the playoff race. You know, Ira, um, you know, talking about guys like like Sogard, this is a guy pretty, you know, just an underrated kind of, like you said, like utility guy. There's one thing in baseball. If the Athletics or the Rays are trying to get one of your players and it doesn't seem to make sense, they probably see something that you don't because these team, those two teams get more out of players than anybody in the sport. Right, and I think that's why the Mets would trade a Diaz. I mean, I think in a lot of these trades, if somebody really wants that trade and wants that player, and, 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 you know, and also the, uh, the minor leaguers you give up, there's some teams that are scouting them. I mean, I, I go to the spring training games. I'm watching the, the, the whole behind home plate. There's 40 scouts. And they're, and they're not leaving in the fifth and sixth innings like everybody else is leaving. They're staying till the seventh, eighth, ninth inning. They're watching these players. And there could be some scout that says, this guy is, has the wrong mechanics. If we could work with him, if we could do this, he's going to be a superstar for us. And everybody wants to find that player, and that's why they want to make those trades. So if a team realizes that another team wants that player, then that's adding value to that. Now, Diaz, from the Mets' perspective, Diaz has a lot of value because he's this great closer who they brought in from Seattle. But if, a, but, but he has, but if somebody really, really wants him, then they give and there's a, there's a prospect the Mets want, then that, that trade's going to get done. I mean, I think people are, people are looking for these trades as like they're just going to get done. I think it has to be the right trade. It has to be someone who's giving prospects that a team wants, and, a, and the star has to be someone that the other team wants. I mean, I know that sounds like simplistic, but I think that's sometimes we sort of say, oh, this guy's got to be traded for someone. No, it has to be right for each team, and I don't think they're going to make a trade just to make a trade. No, you're absolutely right. This is Ira on Sports 95.9, the true oldies channel. It's 729. I'm Mike Balsamo. Don't forget to follow Ira on Instagram at Ira on Sports. Anything else you're keeping your eye on before this uh, July 31st deadline? 
as we said before, I think Vasquez for the Pirates, he has a 187 ERA, one blown save, a 21, 21 saves. He's a very good relief pitcher. The Dodgers clearly need someone. They have Jansen, who's their closer, but they need help in the bullpen. It just seems like the perfect trade. The, the Pirates need a catcher. They have Kerbert Ruiz and Will Smith as catcher, one of their catchers. I think the Pirates are going to make this trade. I think that's it's just going to happen. And... I don't know. The Yankees are looking for pitchers anywhere. Robbie Ray plays for Arizona. They might come in. But the Yankees now, if they can't get one of these top-line starters, they're going to have to make a trade for something or bring up some of their minor league players. The problem with the Yankees is a lot of their prospects are in the single A. They're not ready for the come to the major leagues. So that's, that could be a problem. I mean, the, I mean, but, you know, the Yankees, they might just try to win the World Series every game, like 13-10. And that's why I was mad about the Tanaka game when they let him in there. Like, the Yankees are one of the only teams, the Red Sox, too. They're down 7 nothing. I think they're still winning that game. Like, I think they can hit. They have so many hitters. Like, why would you take – they all hit home runs. Why in the world would you just concede a game on a 7 nothing game? Uh, so, but no, I think it'll be, it's July 3rd, you know, and as we said last week, this is it. There's no waiver deadlines. There's going to be some weird moves people are going to make in two weeks. Whatever trades are going to be done now, this is when the trades are. So I'm pretty excited by that, and we'll see what kind of players get moved in, in the next two days. Ira, let's move on to golf. And, you know, we, we spoke uh, just briefly before the show. It's getting really hard to deny how good Brooks Kepka is, and it's crazy that he doesn't get enough credit. Well, this is just credit. I mean, I love how, okay, he's won. I mean, this is like saying a team wins like five World Series titles in a row or five Super Bowls, but they don't have a better regular season record or whatever. I mean, the Kepka's criticism was that he only won four majors, and we talked about the only, Phil Mickelson's won five. I mean, and now he, but he just, now he just wins the World Golf Championship this year, and he's had three wins on the year. And he's been, in 2017, he won the U.S. Open. He, uh, in 2018, he won the U.S. Open, and the, and the PGA was in first. And, the, and then in 2019, he's the second in the Masters, first in the PGA, second in the U.S. Open, and fourth in the British. I mean, just amazing. He was one stroke down behind Rory going into the final round, won it by three strokes over Webb Simpson, really cruised those last two holes in terms of, of winning. Um, it was supposed to be. It was going to be exciting. I mean, I got excited on Sunday. I'm like, oh, boy, Rory, first time that Rory and Brooks have ever been paired yeah. in the final round pairing. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. But Rory just, it was funny, on three and five, the, two, the first two holes where Kepka birdied them, Rory just parred them, and it was like Rory just could not keep up with Kepka. I mean, Kepka just made those two shots, and then it just got, kept getting ahead, ahead of Rory. It's not that Rory, Rory started playing poorly at the end, but it was that he just couldn't get momentum. And we talked about Rory for some of his games. I mean, there's some these rounds where it's hard for him to get all four rounds put together. I mean, he's, but Kepka wanted to, I think this motivated I think it was interesting. You know, the people say that Kepka doesn't have motivation in these, quote, non-majors. I think playing with Rory in a final round at the World Golf event, which is a $10.2 million tournament, I think that motive, whatever motivation he needed, that was motivation uh, to do it. So, uh, but, you know, so far this year he's a pair of top ten finishes at, at Firestone. And, uh, and so, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's really done well. I mean, it's unbelievable. They're like saying he doesn't do well at any of these. He, he's, he has had a phenomenal – he's the best player – but he's also not only done well in tournaments. He is the best, by far, best player in golf right now. And I think it's as, as he is as dominant in golf as, since Tiger. I don't think there's. I think there was a point when uh, when Rory and Spieth were playing really, really well. But I think right now Brooks is Brooks's height. What he's been. I mean, at every tournament, every big tournament. He's going to be in that, on, the, on the tippy top of the leaderboard competing. I think it, and winning the majors that he has with the four majors uh, in three years, I think, he's, I think he is that. Look, I'm not comparing him to Tiger at all, but I'm saying is that right now he is as dom- he's the most dominant golfer since Tiger was in his dominant form. 
No, I, I agree with you completely. And I think, you know, on top of that, Ira, I, I think it's somewhat the fear factor, too. I don't, like, you know, you just brought up the Jordan Spieth and, and Rory thing. I don't think a lot of golfers were, like, scared to be playing with them on a Sunday, whereas I think Brooks is the, the closest thing we've seen to Tiger in that sense, where it's like, oh, man, like, here comes Brooks Kepka. Well, I think on 15 and 16, he actually hit a bad tee shot. And we, as I said, I've, how many rounds have I seen with him? This is like 14 rounds of golf. I've watched Brooks walked with 14 rounds. His ability to get a rough is, I mean, you look at his, how strong he is, and that's where it really helps. I mean, look, he drives as well. And a lot of these guys drive great. But when that ball is nestled in there and he's able to get it out and get it on the green and save pars, his par saving is, and it's not just weird trick shots like a Phil Mickelson par saves. It's like he hit a bad drive, but he's able then to stay in that hole. And it does, it's not that other golfers might make it a bogey or a double bogey. He just pars it. And I think that's a strange. And he turns par fives into birdies too. I mean, he might hit a bad tee shot on a par five and turn that in. And that's his, his ability. I mean, at the, at the uh, World Golf Championship, uh, uh, Leishman had uh, Webb Simpson finished 13 under, Leishman 12 under. Fleetwood, who actually, if you guys remember, he did great in, uh, at, at the British Open, too, finishing second. He finished 11 in fourth place. Rom was minus 10. Uh, Spieth, Thomas, and Dustin Johnson all minus 6 and minus 5. Uh, interesting. Gary Woodland won the U.S. Open and really has, he missed the cut at the British Open. And they said, would this propel Gary Woodland on? It really hasn't. He, did, he missed the cut at the, US, at the British Open, and then he was almost like near the end at this tournament at plus 6. And Phil Mickelson was at plus eight. It is uh, it is crazy to think about, and um, uh, you know, I think uh, our boy Ricky Fowler. And uh, do do we know why he didn't show up? Obviously, we know Tiger's taking a little hiatus, but I didn't hear anything about Ricky. I couldn't, you know, I searched for that. I don't know why he didn't play. He's not hurt, and he announced he wasn't going to play. I, he has a weird schedule. I mean, Ricky played the Honda where nobody else played the Honda. So, and he does play certain events that other players aren't playing. Uh, so I would love to find out why he, hadn't, why he chose not to play in it. Um, but mainly, I think just to get, I think he's really focused on this end-of-the-year tournament. I think he wants to get his game grooved uh, for, the, for, the, uh, for the tour championships. Now they have a week off, and then they start playing the uh, uh, Northern Trust. And, and the Barclays, and then they play, uh, and, and, and then they play the Tour Championships in Atlanta. So there's three tournaments left, and I think that's what he's gearing for. And he didn't feel like this was worth worth his while to play. Ira, the uh, PGA Tour is going to be making some pretty big changes for next season. You want to talk about them? Yeah, I mean, the schedule is always cool because I think you watch how we just talked about Ricky Fowler, how they're playing, and and next year is going to be different because it's the Olympics. So the Olympics is the first week of August. So the schedule is going to be, as much as this was compact, next year is going to be even more compact because there's going to be a week off. Like you're going to have... You're going to have the, Brit- the British Open a week off and then the Olympics in Japan. And as much as the golfers, I mean, golf was one of the first Olympic sports. Then it wasn't there for 100 years, and now it's back. And I think it's really prestigious. To, this is going to be, I think, they like, you know, four years ago was a big deal, and I think it's going to be a big deal now. So that, but most of the, the tournaments stay where they are up until, um, up until uh, the Rocket Mortgage from Detroit actually got a great, they moved up to in the, in the end of May. So they're before the Memorial Tournament, this tournament in Detroit. I think it's going to help them a lot. And this World Golf Championship moved to the July 4th weekend, which should be really good because it was sort of caught right after the British Open. So they made a couple tweaks. But from the Honda perspective, which I still think this is a complete disaster, it's they have not – there's <laughs> the Honda, they play the Genesis 
and in L.A. Then they go to play the World Golf in Mexico. So everybody plays in the Genesis. Everybody plays the World Golf Championship. And then they skip the Honda because the next one is Bay Hill, which is Arnold Palmer's tournament in Orlando. And then the following week is the players. So it really hurts. I mean, Bay Hill gets hurt a little bit. But last year, very few of the top players played in the Honda, including all of them, the fact that live in West Palm Beach and the Palm Beach area. So, again, the Honda, they were moving tournaments around to help them. And somehow the Honda, now the problem is you can't, the way the golf schedule is, Everything is tilted to the beginning of the schedule. Um, I don't know if they should start the Florida swing in January. Do something that, that, would, that would help it because way it is, they don't want to play any of the events in Florida, of course, in the summer. So that limits them when they can play it, and they don't want to move it to a fall event, which they're trying to do with tournaments in the fall. So, but in the end, it just makes it, uh, makes it difficult for, uh, for the Honda. Uh, our buddy, he, this guy gets a lot of uh, press here on Iron Sports. It's Sergio Garcia. I didn't happen to see what happened with him this weekend, but I, I think you did. Well, there was a tour, he has had. It's interesting. I think there is like uh, you watch the Golf Channel. They do not talk about this, but as much, uh, and you watch on normal. It, but I, you just hear these rumors, and I didn't see it. I watched the tournament. They didn't show it that, that Sergio had a drive. It was errant, of course. And then he gets mad, and he takes the driver and starts pound, pounding the tee box and creating di- this huge divot in the middle of the tee box right where other people are driving. It's, it's so un... Like, I mean, there's sportsmanship. You don't do this. And this is what he did to the greens, and he did to... And he's done to bunkers. And he just hit this divot and just kept walking. It wasn't a div- I mean a divot. He went and just took his driver and just started pounding like a little like a little kid would yeah. on the on the on the. And, but he hasn't been punished by any of this, which is interesting. And it's just and it's not even covered. It's like one of these stories that people aren't talking about. And also, it's not being covered, and he's not being punished for it. But you but you go on if you just you can see it on YouTube and you see it on the channels. It's just amazing. And I just he's amazing. He can get away with all this and not get criticized because he he is known to be a very classy guy before, but fiery. And now I don't know, but he still has this. Everybody loves Sergio. He's very popular. But if Tiger would do this, this would be the lead on ESPN. Oh, like, yeah. Or if Brooks Kepka did this, it's like Sergio can get away with this and no one says anything. <laughs> You're listening to Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. It's 739. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, the NBA World Championships are here, and I think you're a little disappointed with the turnout. Well, it's not. They'll be here in September. But if you were watching, if anybody was watching ESPN and saw under the screen, you just kept hearing all these names of, like, everybody, like Paul George, Blake Griffin, Kyrie Irving, Bradley Beal, just everybody who started saying they're pulling out of the World Championships. And the World Championships is like the World Championships in soccer. It's the once, once every four years World Championship. And they moved it to a year before the Olympics. But it's, quote, like the biggest basketball international event besides the Olympics. And people remember, though, that in, in 1992, when we had uh, the Dream Team, that's what sort of, when you watch the NBA today and you're like, all these foreign players, there weren't that, that many foreign players hardly at all back in 1992. It was the Magic uh, Johnson, Larry Bird, Malone, Stockton. I mean, if you look at that roster, I couldn't believe, first of all, everybody was under the age of 30, except for Magic was 32 and Bird was 35. And you have all these, uh, Patrick Ewing, David Robinson, Charles Barkley, I mean, the greatest, Scotty Pippen, the greatest of the greats on that team. 
And that's what got just European basketball and international basketball. Everybody's excited about that team. And then in 94, they had the world championships. And, and over the years, Coach K then took over the team, and they've been winning with LeBron James and Durant and Curry and all these players who have played in the, in the tournament. But this year, the tippy-top stars didn't want to be in, but they're in the next-level stars were supposed to be in it. And now they've started to all pull out. So, like, the team is going to be made of, like, Kemba Walker, who's great. We talked about for Boston, Donovan Mitchell of Utah. But, like, even on their wings, like, Chris Middleton, uh, P.J. Tucker, Jalen Brown, and their big Andre Drummond, Miles Turner. Like, they're not having James Harden, Anthony Davis. These guys aren't playing in this. Uh, Damian Lillard, Kevin Love. Uh, it's, it's, this is a team to lose. I mean, they, they're big guys, don't shoot threes. There's only a couple guys in this team that are really good three-point shooters. And people say, well, I don't really care. But it's in China, and I couldn't believe that these players would not want to play in this world championship to get their marketing power to adver- advertisers and everything in China. I'm shocked. I, w- I mean, it was interesting that if they weren't going to play, then why'd they make announcement? Like, why wasn't this announced months ago? Like, why did they just announce it now uh, and for this? And, and some people are going to say it's not a big deal, but I do think that this is what I talk about every week, load management. These players don't want to play a lot, and they, they think it's really bad to play so many, and they don't want to rest themselves, which is interesting. But the fact is that this is important to grow the, the brand of basketball, and I'm, I'm shocked that their sponsors didn't push them to do this, and I'm shocked that a lot of these players, the younger players, not some of the older players wouldn't want to, but some of these younger players didn't want to try to say, wow, this is a way to be on the world stage. All of China's going to be watching this. The whole world's going to be watching this. I can expand my brand. I'm amazed that these players, I mean, they're making so much money. Maybe they feel like, how much more money can they make? Yeah, it probably is. that. I, I thought the same thing with the sponsors. I, I know that, you know, once Nike's putting a couple of hundred million dollars in your wallet, they can kind of call the shots on some of your uh, actions like this. So, yeah, I, I really thought that, that you know, these guys would want or their, their sponsors would want these guys over there pushing their, 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 their shoes and, and all their clothes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. And, and it's, it is something that I guess the salaries in the NBA have been a factor. And we're, we're going to see what happens next year. I mean, it's when Adam Silver talks about having these in-season tournaments and changing how we view basketball. I mean, is this what we're seeing? I don't know. But the point is that if that was what's so important, like this type of event, like if you watch soccer, I mean, if they're saying, we're going to turn basketball to be like soccer. Well, in soccer, they're leaving the middle of the season to play friendlies and worlds all the time. So this is just, this game, this is not during the regular season. This is in September, and it's right before the season starts in training camp. And you'd expect that, like, I would thought that a lot of these guys would be using this to get in shape for the season, like gearing themselves up mm-hmm. for the season and saying, let's, because they're going to have, it's not like in the middle of summer where they can gear down, but they, they've chose not to do it. And, and I, I don't know. We'll see what it, we'll just see. I mean, there's not going to be as much interest in this at all with the fact that none of these stars are playing. Are you saying that people aren't going to be tuning in for Mason Plumley and uh, Julius Randle? <laughs> I don't know if Mason's going to make the team. There are 17 players and only 12 will make it, but I don't think Mason will make it. Yeah, no, I, no, I doubt I that too. I think that's, that's it. <laughs> um, Ira, so you're saying that the LA Clippers might not be the LA Clippers anymore sometime soon. Well, that's the other interesting thing about the NBA this week is um, I, I could. They're not only are they building this. I mean, when I was in LA. I saw what was going on. First of all, 
the Dodgers are spending $100 million to renovate their stadium. The Dodgers had looked for another stadium. They looked and looked and looked, and they have the third oldest stadium, but they can't, they can't, there's no great place to put another Dodger stadium. They're in, like, the best place to put a stadium, and they can't tear the stadium down and build another stadium like the Yankees were able to do. Um, so they're stuck. They are just trying to keep upgrading. So they already spent $150 million a few years ago. Now they're spending another $100 million to, if anyone goes to Dodger Stadium, it's impossible to walk around the stadium. to like, walk upstairs and down. It's because it's on a mountain. It's difficult. It's beautiful and great, but they're going to actually make a center field entrance, make it really beautiful to enter, and, and they're going to put statues up and all this other stuff to make it a more event place. Now, remember, when you're at Dodger Stadium, there's really nowhere to go. You're in a parking lot, a stadium. You can't just, like, walk to bars. That's the negative of the side of it, but it is great views. It's history. People love it, um, those things, and I love it. I think it's great. Uh, the Clippers don't want to be in the Staples Center anymore with the Lakers. Uh, they moved from San Diego, and they were in the sports arena. Then they ended up in Anaheim, and they've been bouncing around in the last, I guess, 10 years. They've been in the Staples Center. They, don't, they want to have their own arena, so they're going to build their own arena in Englewood next to the new football stadium. But not only are they going to build a new arena, they're going to change their logo and change the name of the team. <laughs> but they haven't made an announced what they're going to do. They're considering it, but I, I think they're going to change it. I mean, the Clippers came from the idea of San Diego Clippers because the Clippers ships. And I think they feel like they want to have a different type of name. So that'll be interesting with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard and the whole rebranding of the team. I think it's like perfect to actually do that right now. Absolutely. And, you know, if they time it out perfectly, let everyone go buy their uh, Kawhi and Paul George Clippers jerseys, then swap the team out. Everyone's got to go pick up some new ones. Um, Ira, what's going on in in fighting, boxing, MMA? Well, there was... um, there was a, a big UFC 240 this week. Max Holloway and Frankie Edgar, and Max Holloway is the featherweight champion. And it was a great. Frankie Edgar's a great fighter. And Holloway. And I like what I like about UFC is is, is Holloway went up in the division. And he's won 13 featherweight. He's the champion. But he actually went up in a, in a weight class and lost to uh, uh, lost uh, three months ago. But now came back and defended his title against Edgar. I mean, it's great. It's unlike boxing. These guys don't mind having losses on their record. They want to just get the best. I mean, it's like. Tom Brady doesn't win every game, and, 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 and that's what sports is. I think boxing is too much. Everyone wants to have this undefeated record where they really – it's not that important in, in MMA. They want to just say, are you beating good are, – what are the best matches happening? And it was, it was an exciting match. I mean, Edgar was tried 14 times to get Holloway on the ground, take it to a takedown, and then Holloway wouldn't go down. Holloway's a taller fighter. He's skinnier, but he just wouldn't go down and was a better boxer. And, and, and it, was, it was exciting because Edgar is a great fighter, and just the strategy that went into it uh, – and very entertaining. It was, it was also in Canada and very popular. And it was just neat to see it on TV. So that was, that was like the big match. And Jose Ramirez beat Maurice Hooker in Arlington, uh, Texas, uh, for the junior welterweight title. And this Jose Ramirez is a very, very good young fighter who's now won two of the belts of the junior welterweight division. So that was, uh, that was a, that from the boxing perspective, that was the big boxing match. It's Iron Sports 95.9, the True Oli's channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Don't forget, you can follow Ira on uh, Instagram at Iron Sports. It's 747. Ira, I, I won't lie to you. I haven't really followed the Tour de France since the, you know, the glory days with Lance Armstrong. And uh, things have obviously changed. I didn't realize that they really <laughs> took him out of everything. And you said if you look at his Wikipedia page, they don't even list anything like that. Kind of crazy, but uh, we, we did have a winner this... Uh, we did just have a winner. I don't know how to pronounce the name. I say it's Egan Banal. Yes, that's how you did say it. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about uh, how this went down. Well, I, this is interesting. Now, back in 99 to 2005, the Tour de France 
was really big. I mean, everybody talked about it. Because Lance Armstrong, to understand his background, I mean, here is someone who was told he was going to die. And he had a sister of cancer. And not only did he survive, because he was already a very good cyclist. And it's like a sad story that it's not only was he, his career going to be over, of course, but he was going to die. But not only does he survive, but he comes back, and he's this superstar. And he, and he wins seven Tour de France's in a row, and he won it with flair and style and just dominated. I mean, the scenes of him just pulling away and no one in the pack not being able to get him. It was just, and it was just motivational to everybody. I mean, I, as I said, people I think now in 2019 don't, can't think that Lance Armstrong was as big as, as almost like a LeBron James. I mean, he was thought about everywhere. Everyone, everyone wore yellow bracelets around there. Yep. He was motivational. And his point was, I'm not finding the cure for cancer. I'm going to have people who live with cancer be able to live with cancer the way they live with it and survive and keep doing those things. And that's the way his motto was, live strong. So he was this model. And then, and there was all these accusations that he used steroids, but he was tested all the time, tested constantly, tested after every race, and he passed every single test, every one of them. And so the people wrote stories about him, and then he was very aggressive and sued people and back and forth. And then finally, it just became, and then after he, he retired, but then his, he came back in 2009. And when he came back in 2009, people were even more mad at him. I think if he would have stayed retired in 2005 and just ended with that, it would not, the drumbeat against him wasn't going to be so great. But then the drumbeat came, and finally he ended up admitting that, yes, I was doping, it was doping. But it wasn't just he was doping. The entire, everybody was. Like, there were, there were years in that time when first through 15 were all dopers. So it was like the entire sports did, and I don't really talk about this on Iron Sports, but I, I just feel like Lance Armstrong is just like totally discarded, but the entire sport did it, and I guess testing didn't keep track about how it was done. It was very sophisticated, but I don't know. I, I, just, I, still, I still regarded that Lance Armstrong, when the entire field is cheating, and he was winning against all the other cheaters, then I feel he's the champion, because it wasn't like he was just, I just feel like it's, I don't, I think he's being on, on, Look, people won't say he's unfairly criticized because you want a level playing field. But when the playing field is everyone is using, using performance-enhancing drugs, then I feel like he's this great champion. But, of course, he's been stripped of every title that he had. He's not even allowed to compete in, like, triathlons or anything. He's banned from everything. And people don't talk about him anymore. And I don't think people realize that between 99 and 2005, he was, he, it was this would have, we would have led with this. This would have been our number. This has been the number one story that we would have started this more than baseball or basketball or football or anything. It would have been Lance Armstrong, and that's what made it so defining. And then, and it really hurt the tour because after he's been this is fine, then people don't have this interest in the Tour de France. And the fact that uh, Banal was a 22 years old, his youngest rider in 110 years to win the first Colombian, and he didn't win a single stage, but was able to 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 win. France had a guy, uh, France's best rider. People thought was going to he was going to win, and he led for 14 days, but um, when they had the Alps were the high, when they were going over the mountains, he was just got destroyed, and uh, and so he didn't, so he was going to be the first rider since 1985 for France to win, but so it's interesting, maybe, you know, it's just not, it'll never, ever be as big as when Lance Armstrong won it, but I don't think people now can even remember how big the Tour de France was, and how everybody would watch it, and how it aired on NBC, and it was like a must event that people watched in the summer. Ira, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on at the Swimming World Championships and how a local guy might be the next big thing? 
Well, again, we're talking sports that nobody talks about, but <laughs> the Olympics. Again, Michael Phelps is big, too. Like, I'm trying to say, it's like, one thing I like to look at is, like, who's the next big thing? Who are we going to talk about? And, and Michael Phelps was, was the most decorated Olympian ever of any sport. Won more medals, uh, gold, just the most, arguably the most dominant athlete I've ever seen in any sport. But, you know, more than Michael Jordan, everything. It was just in terms of his titles. But when someone's coming and breaking his world records and winning seven golds, we should talk about him. I and Caleb Dressel was born in Green Cove Springs, Florida. He went to the University of Florida, and he broke Michael Phelps' record in the 100-meter fly, and he holds the American records in the 50-meter, the 100-meter freestyle, the butterfly 50 and 100 meters, and, uh, and, 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 and they also won the record in the, in the combined in the medley. Uh, he's he's going to be the next big thing in the Olympics. So this could become his, his coming out party. So we're going to be talking next year, this in the summer, about Caleb Dressel uh, and, uh, and and what kind of records he's going to set and what he's going to do against Phelps. Because people kept saying, like, there'll be, another, there'll be no other Michael Phelps come along. But, boy, he is... I mean, just dominant, and, and people, are, people, have been, people know that he's been very good. He's done an Alvis in two cycles, but his Olympics will, in, in Japan will be his coming out party to the world. And as we bring up in the Olympics, these superstars, and they become household names, but they actually they don't, just, they don't compete just once every four years. They actually have events all year long, and it just happens to be the world champions this year is, is very big, and it sets a stage for the Olympics. Ira, you know, I got uh, the first email today from Yahoo!, reminding me that fantasy football is right around the corner and that I need to re-up my league. So this is how you know, and it's getting really close. We'll talk about all this in a second. But the Dallas Cowboys are going to have a lot of players that need contracts very soon. Um, One of them is their star running back, Ezekiel Elliott, and he's demanding a contract pretty much at this point. With all this guy's off-the-field antics, heck, on-the-field antics, at what point, you know, if I'm Jerry Jones and the Cowboys, I'm not having an issue not paying this guy and letting him walk or trading him and, and just saying, you know, like, I, I got other malice to feed around here and you are a headache. Well, he wants $14 million. He's owed $6 million this year, $6 million next year. Typically, the Cowboys would probably wait till any other team would wait till the end of this year to redo his contract. He's still on his, quote, rookie deal. Um, but now he's not reporting to camp. And it's interesting that, so back in 1992, now I'm old enough to remember what happened in 1992, but Emmett Smith held out the first two, he put out the first two games, and then the team lost two games. Jerry Jones, I mean, they had Troy Aikman, Michael Orvin, they had all the players, Jimmy Johnson, and finally the pressure became so great on, Jimmy, on Jerry Jones that he gave Emmett the contract that he wanted, he, uh, which was only, which, which is less than what, much, which was like 50% of what Emmett is even, what, what Ezekiel is getting right now. Uh, he was only making four to 65000 at the time, and he got like $2 million a year. Uh, but he came back and they won the Super Bowl. So the point is the Cowboys think that right now they're a Super Bowl contender. Did they want a situation like they had with, uh, with the Steelers when Le'Veon Bell holds out and when they had with Emmett with, with holding out? And, and I guess Jerry Jones thinks he can work out a deal, and it, it behooves Ezekiel to come back, but he has these suspensions. He has all these off-the-field issues. And Jerry Jones, I mean, there is a point that, that Jerry Jones has been extremely supportive of Emmett Smith. I mean, he has fought the league. As hard as Kraft fought for Brady, he fought for Ezekiel Elliott. And he's really gone to the mat for Ezekiel Elliott and done everything. 
I almost think that Ezekiel Elliott owes him something, uh, maybe not pushing as hard for this, because I think the Cowboys have been totally behind him. And I know he wants to make his money now. They don't want a situation like uh, where he would get hurt and then not be able to get the money. But, I mean, he's still making $6 million a year now. Uh, but the point is that I, it, I, I think in the end of the day, because Darius Jackson is his backup, they'll give him the money. If they had a different running back as his backup and they're so close, they, people think they could win the Super Bowl, I think they're going to they're gonna compromise somewhere, and I think that, that Ezekiel has to compromise. I think by the start of the season he'll be playing for the Cowboys. Um, not getting um, nearly as much press because he's just not a loud mouth like Ezekiel Elliott, but Melvin Gordon's holding out, and... Melvin Gordon, he's just a year older th- th- than Zeke. Um, he might be the most underrated running back in, in the league. The guy is quality, and I would argue that he means more to the Chargers offense than Ezekiel Elliott does. Just the fact that the, you know the Cowboys offensive line is consistently great, and we saw DeMarco uh, Murray run for almost 2,000 yards uh, right before uh, Elliott came on the scene. But it looks like Melvin Gordon is wanting a new contract as well. Well, I think it's interesting what happens is, again, San Diego is favored to win, or San Diego, Los Angeles Chargers, the favorite <laughs> to win their division, and they don't want any distractions. I mean, I, I, the Labian Bell is hanging over these teams because it became a distraction. But the difference is that San Diego has Austin Eckler and Justin Jackson who actually ran very well when Gordon was hurt last year. So I think from the perspective is, yes, Gordon means everything to the Chargers, and this could be the last window, whereas the, the Cowboys have Dak Prescott, a very young quarterback, uh, they have a young team. They're like, whatever. This is it for Phillip Rivers. I mean, you got his window is about shut. We have two, three years. Do they want this distraction? They, do they want all hands on deck? Let's, this could be the chance that Rivers wins his title. I mean, remember, we talked about how Ben's won two titles. Eli's won two titles. Rivers has won zero titles. I mean, this could be his chance to win that title. Uh, do you do they pay the money? And Gordon knows it. That's why he's holding out now. So that's the situation. But the third holdup, I think, is even the one. Michael Thomas for the Saints. He has one year left on his contract. But the Saints' entire offense is passing. And they need him. And he's by far their best wide receiver. So i got to think that they, 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 that's a deal that has to be done in that. But those are three. The, these are big-name holdouts from, for training camp. I mean, this is just training camp. So don't get excited. If, as long as they're starting game one, then everything's good. Nobody cares about the, the, the preseason games. Nobody cares about training camp as long as you don't get hurt at training camp. But as, if these guys can come in and play game one, that's all that matters. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with our uh, hometown Miami Dolphins. Well, it's interesting. They fired their offensive line coach after one week, which is hilarious. I mean, we last one week in preseason and in training camp, but they fired Pat Flaherty and brought Dave D'Agliano in, who was the Patriot. And this is, this is clearly the read between the lines. Uh, Brian Flores, the coach, has, was with the Patriots for 13 years. He's definitely bringing in Patriot guys. He wants, he wants Patriot guys running this team and being involved in this team and being his coaches. And I think that was the move. They weren't happy. Now, they said that the offensive line was getting destroyed in practice. Well, is that good that the offensive Maybe that means the Dolphins' defensive line is playing so well. But they haven't really had other scrimmages, anybody else. So does that mean if, you're, if you think the Dolphins' defense could be much improved? But I think clearly they think the offensive line was a disaster. And when you have Ryan Fitzpatrick and Josh Rosen and, and Kenyon Drake at running back, I mean, the Dolphins are looking at a very bad year. I, I guess they want to... Uh, but established something. But it was interesting that you saw a coach fired after four, d- four days of practice. So, <laughs> oh, your boy. Well, he's not your boy anymore, and I bet you're pretty happy about it. Jalen Ramsey of the Jacksonville Jaguars, he's about as big a loud mouth as you can get in the league without being Antonio Brown. He shows up to camp 
in a Brinks truck, in, in a money truck. So what does Antonio Brown do, Ira? He has to one-up him. Well, he came in in a hot air balloon, which I thought was <laughs> I mean, I, mean I, I think Gruden said the right thing. I mean, Gruden embraced it. When, when, when he did this in, in Pittsburgh, Tomlin was like dismissed it. But Gruden likes that. They like the flair. They like all those things. I didn't like the fact that he said he, he did the first day of practice, his foot hurt him, and he didn't practice. I didn't think that was a good sign. I mean, when you sat out, you didn't play the last game. It was all about injuries and this and that. You don't want to see that. But unfortunately, I think he's going to have, because I'm not an Antonio Brown fan, I think he's going to have a really good year this year, the way they run their offenses. But uh, both Le'Veon Bell and Antonio Brown, these two guys have really like taken over, because Le'Veon Bell issued an apology to all his fantasy football owners last year because he didn't play and he hinted he was going to play and he messed everybody up and so he apologized and it's amazing that everybody you know they're non-stealers and now the Steelers can just get back to being the business and doing the Steeler way and doing those things and Antonio Brown in Oakland and Lavian and the Jets are still getting headlines I mean the people that's what people are writing about and you know some sad news out of your division the AFC North AJ Green is it all the talent in the world, he had a down year last year and, you know, plagued by injuries, and now he's probably going to miss about half the season. I think the Bengals are going to be terrible this year. I think they, they are going to be awful. And, and, and I think there's, a, there's, a, there's something that has not been covered by this, is that some of the people complained. So what happens is, and I saw last year, a lot of these teams, they have everything about preseason and training camp is under discussion for the NFL because, first of all, nobody wants to play in these preseason games. They're going to show them on TV. Everyone's getting excited, and no one's going to watch them, and nobody's going to, none of these players even play in these games anymore. It used to be there's like one game that people would play in. I think they're going to like they don't play them at all. Um, so I think that's the point. Uh, but that's also, that used to be you would go to training camp. Like the Steelers play at Latrobe, and they have like 25 open sessions or 20 open sessions, which is most, probably the most in the NFL. It used to be they would go somewhere, every, fans could come, they could watch them. But now these teams have such advanced complexes where they have their uh, facilities. Like why in the world would they go to some college and play at, uh, in a college uh, atmosphere and dormitories? You know, it's nice to have the bonding experience, but maybe they'll go to the movies or something. Like they want these teams to be, they want, why not be at their center where all, and so Cincinnati was like playing in, I think it was a high school stadium, but the field was uneven, and that's where A.J. Green said he, it was a bad field, and he got hurt. Now, that's, that's the question. I mean, the Steelers played at Latrobe, but the Steelers actually run that field. It's in Latrobe, but the Steeler train, the people that run the Steelers in Heinz Field actually do this, the field at Latrobe at the stadium. So I was amazed at how, like, it's the best high school field I've ever saw in my life when I saw it last year. And it's because the, training, the, uh, the, uh, the staff that runs both fields does that field also. So there's a question about A.J. Green, and, but it does, I don't think in the scheme of things it matters. I mean, he is one of the top wide receivers in the game, but the Bengals are awful, and this is just another problem for them. Yeah, um, let's talk about um, just about three minutes or so left here on Iron Sports on the True Oldies channel. Um, AFC East is a lot of shakeups. Three second-year quarterbacks and the GOAT. Well, I just, yeah, I just want to break down the East and maybe the Central, but I think the Jets, the over-under on the Jets this year is seven and a half. They were, they won seven last year. I'm still not sold on Sam Darnell. I don't know about this team. I'm nervous about them. I, and certainly uh, Gase was down in, in Miami and you saw where that went. Um, I don't know if their defense is good enough. I think that, I think seven and a half is a reach. Like, I, I don't think they're going to, I think they'll like our five or six win team. I don't see them winning seven and a half games. And I'll be, I don't think they're going to make the seven and nine record. The Dolphins are six and 10 last year. They have a, their over under is five. I mean, they'll be lucky to win or two or three games. I would not bet 
I mean, I'd bet the under on them. Uh, the Bills, I mean, the only advantage these teams have is they do play each other, so someone's going to have to get wins. The Bills <laughs> over under, they had four wins last year. They're over under six and a half. Um, their defense is great, but I'm not sold on Josh Allen at quarterback. They really have no running game. They really don't have wide receivers either. Um, I don't know what they're going to do. I'm just not sold on them. I mean, I would almost go under on both the Jets, Dolphins, and Bills. But that's why when I see the Pats over under at 11, I'm like, I think they're 12 or 13. Like, they're not going to lose. Those, they have six wins. Like, they are going to – they could start the season – a shock if they would lose to the Jets, the Dolphins, and the Bills. So they might lose one, but they're going to be 10-point or more favorites against all those teams. And let's talk about uh, your AFC North. Um, you know, a lot of people are anointing the Browns as the new Super Bowl champions before they've even stepped on the field with this roster. I still think it's the Steelers' division to lose. I think it's going to be great between the Browns and the Steelers, though. I, I think the Browns over and under is nine. The Steelers over and under is nine. They both had the same over and under. Browns last year won seven games. Steelers won nine. Um, I love the Steelers' defense. I love what they've done. I think you're going to be shocked to see how Devin Bush and uh, Bud Dupree and T.J. Watt play at linebacker. I think this defense, you're going to be like, wow, the Steelers' defense is really, really good. Uh, Nelson, Hayden, Sean Davis, Troll Edmonds in the secondary. This Justin Lane from Michigan State, who they brought in in the corner, is going to be very good, too. And the Steelers' wide-receiving core. Uh, everyone from training camp says DeAndre Johnson, uh, their, their second-round pick, it looks tremendous. They have Juju Smith-Schuster back, Dante Moncrief. Their offensive line is tremendous. And they have great running backs between Connor Samus, who saw last year, and Benny Snell of Kentucky. I like the Steelers a lot. I think they're. I mean, I, I look. I'm biased. Everything about them. I think they're great. But I'm. I'm going to give the Browns their due. I'm excited to see them play. To have Jarvis Landry and Beckham and Nick Chubb and Hunt and Duke Johnson with Mayfield, who I think is the real deal. Like these other quarterbacks are like uh, Mayfield. I think is real deal. I like their excitement. I like their energy. This team is going to do well. They're very good on defense too. Um, even though they have Morgan Burnett, I saw as, as starting in the secondary who was on the Steelers last year is terrible. But I like the Browns. I think the Browns and Steelers are going to be battling it out. I mean, I could see both teams winning 10 games, uh, 10 or 11. I think they're both going to have good teams. I, I think the Ravens are the team that everyone has an over-under eight and a half. I'm not sold That's on That's crazy. I think yeah. that last year, Lamar Jackson and the running quarterback thing, that was sort of a gimmick. And I, I don't think it's going to work. I mean, now that everyone's looked at them, they really ha- they came back and they went all in on that. They got rid of Joe Flacco. They have Lamar Jackson, RJ3, Trace McStory, their quarterback. Their best wide receiver is Willie Sneed. They have Mark Ingram at running back, who's really not a pass catcher, but just a running back. I mean, they're, now their defense was carried them last year, but they lost a lot of their defenders. They brought in Earl Thomas. I don't know. I mean, I would go under. I mean, I would be lucky to win like six games. And I think the Bengals will be terrible. So I think, you know, I, I look at the Ravens and Bengals being awful, and I think the Steelers and Browns will have 10 wins and the Patriots have 11 or 12. So I do think there's not going to be – when you look at the over-under totals, you look at – it's almost like everyone's got the same record. And that's what parity is in the NFL. But I, And I've said that I do think that these are the divisions, these four teams, Jets, Dolphins, Bills – and uh, the Bengals are terrible. Like, I don't think they're – but I think when you, the thing what they like, if you're a Jets, Dolphins, or Bills fan, you're like, oh, let's see about our young quarterbacks. Let's see how Josh Rosen – let's uh, Josh Allen from the Bills, Sam Darnell for the Jets. So there's hope. And, the, and if, they, if they get to the 8-8 eight and eight or the 9-7, and seven, then they're going to be, well, the next year we're going to be fantastic. So that's what they'll be looking forward to. Ira, we're just about out of time. Where are you headed this week? 
Um, I don't know. You know, I might go. Uh, it, I'm not sure. There's some baseball I could possibly go to um, and uh, and see, but I just don't know where I'm going to be at and, and, and to catch some baseball. But it's exciting. I mean, this is this is a type of year that, and also we look around the corner. I might go to the Steeler training camp because I, I like going oh, nice. to that the training camp. Good to play, and then the U.S. Open and tennis starts in a couple weeks. So that's another exciting uh, thing in, in, at the end of August. So it's still August is still a month to you know certainly football season is the greatest and, and those things, but there's still a lot of events to, to go in August. We are out of time. I want to thank you so much for popping by on behalf of Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.